0: For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit RedemptionOKC.com. We will be back in Matthew chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles or your device, you can open it up there. Uh, whether you are at home watching online and uh, someone's sick or out at a sporting event and need to jump online today, I want to welcome you all that are watching online. And uh, for those of you that are in the room... Um, welcome, we're excited to get to dive in and continue in this series on the Sermon on the Mount as we study this, uh, these words of Jesus. I feel like as we've walked through the study, these are just incredibly timely words for us. And as I hear the words of Jesus and it makes me reflect on kind of where we've been uh, culturally, and it, these words are just leaping off the page to me and I'm loving uh, the study, but you know, I've been burdened by how badly the American church has struggled over the last year to present some kind of a coherent Christian character to the world around us. And in that, I feel like we have been stumbling about and just kind of exposed. And uh, Chris and I were talking this week and he was talking to a young man in our church and just having a conversation about what does it look like for us to tell people about Jesus and share our faith. And uh, this young man was just re- was telling Chris, and it's really hard to explain that Christ is the only way to connect with God when Christians oftentimes aren't acting like they're supposed to act. And when oftentimes non-Christian people in the world look nicer than Christian people. And so he was struggling with that tension. And uh, I know most of us have had that thought, right? I mean, we've, we've asked that same question at times. Uh, I can't tell you how frustrating it is for me to interact with a guy on the city council here in our city and have him just kind of off the cuff reflect and just say, yeah, you know, the biggest, the biggest kind of trouble causes we've had have been Christians. And then interact with someone who, is uh, connected with the school system and talk about the school board meetings and different difficulties in navigating all the stuff of this last year and have them say the same thing that, you know, it seems like the hardest people to deal with are Christians. And when you look at the scriptures and when I look at Jesus' life and when I look at what the Sermon on the Mount has to say, I don't see anywhere that says that in the nostrils of the world we ought to stink. Like, I just don't think that's the way it was intended to be. And so I scratch my head and I look at it and think, well, where do we get off? And how do we get back on the right path? Friends, the, the church is supposed to be a force to be reckoned with. The church had things way more difficult in the first and second centuries, and yet they thrived as a community where truth and beauty and goodness were on display and where they served the people of the cities in which they lived and where they made a, a, a forever difference in the individuals' lives, but also just in all of the culture around them. They impacted everything. And our world's def- desperately looking for something to take hold of that will teach them how to flourish in the midst of the mess that our world's in right now. And we have an answer But if we become a stench to them, they're not going to listen to the words we have to offer. And so as we look at this today, I want us to lean in and I want to just say that that the world's looking for people who look more like Jesus. And our world's not going to change because we build more buildings or have more stages and lights or or come up with a snazzier presentation or or, or put out more books. Our world's going to change because Jesus' people live next door to them and they look like Jesus' when they tell them about the message of Jesus and invite them to come learn about the kingdom of Jesus and what it looks like to flourish in this world. It's gonna mean we're countercultural. It's gonna mean if we live like Jesus, we're gonna go against the grain. If there's anything we know about following Christ, it's that, that sometimes that has difficulties with it. Sometimes there's uh, things, and in, in fact, the verses that we're gonna look at today come right on the heels of what we looked at last week, which said in verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So it's not gonna be easy. This isn't gonna be a bed of roses. It's not like we're just gonna fit in and everyone's gonna go, oh, sweet, Jesus people are around. It, it's not like that. There is gonna be a pushback. There's gonna be this kind of going against the grain sort of thing that happens in our world. And yet... It's fascinating to me that right after Jesus talks about that if we look like him in the world, we're going to experience persecution because of him. Right after that, he calls us to then go out into the world and shine like bright lights that, that show off his goodness to the world. So there's a little bit of a tension that we ought to feel in the middle of this, uh, this kind of command that Jesus is going to give. One guy says it's like uh, that, that these next verses are like push, pushing young birds out of the nest to fly. Because they know there's gonna be a chance that they're gonna fall and they're gonna get hurt. I mean, who really wants to suffer? Who wants to be reviled? Anyone wake up this morning and go, dude, I hope I get reviled today. That'd be sweet. Like that's, we don't want to go down that road of having people push back against us. And yet we're going to. And so we're not supposed to just desire that in that sense, but we are supposed to desire to be aligned with Christ and to look like Christ. And what we're gonna see in this passage is that we're not here to be a holy huddle. And we're not here to be the frozen chosen. Uh, We're not here to be a posse of political pressure. We're not here to be the country club of uh, of Christianity and and Christian people. We're not here to be uh, the first lady of uh, negative Nellies, or first church of negative Nellies or our lady of perpetual complaining. Like None of of those things describe what the church is supposed to be. We're supposed to be lights. We're supposed to be light to the world. We're supposed to be salt in the world. So let's look at Matthew five, starting verse 13. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, continues and says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, so that it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. These are the words of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus. It's a pretty simple text in a lot of ways. He gives two parallel statements. He says, you're the salt of the earth and you're light of the world. And with each of those statements, he puts conditions on those that are kind of dangers or temptations that we might face. And he says, the, the, the problem there is that if you're the salt of the earth is that the salt must keep its saltiness. We gotta stay salty. And, and the light must stay bright. And you can't hide the light. You can't dim the light. And if we fail in these conditions, Jesus says that, that we're worthless. So, welcome to redemption. Um, do well, or Jesus will call you worthless. Uh, it's not quite that simple, but I'm glad you're here today. Um, but here's the thing. and the next slide, notice I underlined the word you. When he says, You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, it's an emphatic pronoun that's there. He's saying, you and only you are the salt of the earth. You and only you, meaning my my disciples, my followers, those who come after me, who believe in me and who live like me in the, or who are seeking to live like me in the world. You and only you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. They will not see the light apart from you. And so there's this, affirmation of us but there's also this condition this challenge that's going to push on us. So let's look at uh, verse 13 and dive in and see what Jesus is talking about through these two uh, these two images. The first Image there in verse 13, he talks about, uh, you are the salt of the earth. And this image of salt, salt in the ancient world, uh, we might think of it a little different, uh, differently than we, than we tend to think of it. Uh, pre-refrigeration, they didn't all have a basement with deep freeze. They didn't all have a garage with an extra fridge uh, where they kept all, all the extra stuff out there. Uh, they, they had to preserve meat with salt. And so they would encase it in salt and it would keep the meat from, getting, from going bad. It would keep it from spoiling, keep it from becoming rotten. So in one of the, one of the significant uses of salt were it was a preservative of food, it kept things from going bad. The second one is that it added flavor. And so they, they liked salty food, just like we do. And so uh, salt was, was also used for flavor then. It's interesting that one guy, one ancient writer said the world would not endure without salt, meaning like I need to eat meat. And so uh, if we didn't have salt, I'd be in trouble. And, and, and things are gonna somehow go bad. Now, really what he's, what he's saying to us here, Jesus is making a strong point. He's saying the, no, the world can no better survive without um, salt than it can survive without the disciples of Jesus. That if the disciples of Jesus are removed, everything is gonna go rotten everything's going to decay, everything's going to take a wrong turn, everything's going to go the wrong direction. And so you think about this, there, there's, there's a sense in which Jesus' followers exist to provide flavor to the world. They're to make things better. And so when you think about providing flavor to the world, it probably means that through sharing the wisdom and the goodness of God in the world, that the, their experience of the world is going to be a better place because Christians are present. And so we're to be like salt in the world, making it a better place, making, uh, when we're around, things ought to taste actually better, believe it or not. Secondly, the implication here is that we're to preserve the world from corruption and degradation. Uh, Take those together, it just means we should make the world a better place, that we're supposed to have a beneficial effect on all of humanity, simply by our presence in the world. Now, there's an important implication here, right? Salt, is, is distinct or different from whatever it's placed upon. That, that you don't just put meat on meat and have stuff stay rotten. You have to put salt. You put something different around the meat that in, order to, in order to preserve it. And so there's supposed to be this kind of distinctiveness or difference about Christians and their presence in the world ought to have a different effect than, uh, than others in the world. That means that disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus who he's preaching to here should be different and should be seen to be different by others now what, what makes us salty people it it really follows it's important that you see that this flows right out of the beatitudes and so when you think about the beatitudes that we just read looked at over the last 2 weeks uh, blessed are those who are poor in spirit blessed are those who mourn blessed are those who are meek and humble blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness blessed are those who are pure in heart for they will see God when you look at the beatitudes you think about the list and the things we've been talking about it's people like that is what gives us that distinctiveness that saltiness to who we are. It's the character of Christians that, are, that, are to, that is to make us different. Now, when you think about this, um, obviously uh, God's given other influences in the world to help preserve and protect it. He gives government. And so he puts that in place to help distinguish between right and wrong. He puts families and homes together in order to shape our lives. But primarily what Jesus says is that it's the presence of believers and followers of Jesus in the world that keep the world from going the wrong, the wrong direction. Do you see Jesus' point? Um, we're important to the world and those around us, but we're supposed to be a benefit. We're supposed to be something for good. But then he issues the challenge in the next, uh, next phrase where he says, um, but if salt has lost its taste, how can saltiness be restored? Now, this is a weird statement. It's kind of like, how can, uh, can, how can we be unsalty salt? Like it's meant to be kind of a ludicrous statement. It's not meant to be something like Jesus is kind of poking fun a little bit. He's joking here. Uh, You know, one guy says it's like water losing its wetness. Uh, Salt can't become unsalty. Salt, it's a stable compound. And uh, this is really meant to be kind of a ludicrous statement. And and here's here's what he's saying in terms of us. He's saying if you don't do what you're supposed to do, you're just as ludicrous as salt not being salty. Like if you took out a salt shaker and you just kept unloading it on a steak and it never tasted salty and so you just kept putting more on and it didn't work, at some point you're thinking, well, something's wrong with the salt. That's what Jesus is saying is when Christians are present and they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, it's just as silly as that. And that's um, why he goes on. In fact, there's a double entendre here in Greek that says uh, when it says becoming, uh, that when salt becomes saltless or tastes saltless, there's another intent of that word. It could mean that when salts become foolish, And so there's a double entendre that we can't pick up in English. But when he says when when salt's unsalty, it it could also be translated when salt's foolish. And there's an implication there that when we're not living by the wisdom of of Jesus and what he's given for us, given to us in his word, and really in the Beatitudes and what he's already said at this point, he says, you become tasteless, you become foolish, which means you're worthless, you're useless. You know, salt can't even be added to compost. He said, you can't even add it to the compost pit which means they would throw it in the street and so where people would walk on it and it'd just become like the dust of the ground in the city because it's that worthless. It's of no value whatsoever. It's no longer good for anything, Jesus said, except to be trampled under people's feet. So friends, here's the thing. It's truly tragic when Christians have no sense of Christ in them. You can't be salt and not have any, salt, and not have any saltiness. You can't be a Christian and not have any Christiness, Christ-likeness. Christ about you. That the, those go together is what Jesus is saying. And so in that, um, the, the reality is there's people in our world that have the words of Christianity. They have the, the name of Christ. They want to keep the name of Christian, but they don't seem to resemble Christ much. And Jesus is saying that's a problem. It's like, it's like unsalty salt. And here's the thing. We can get as frustrated as we want with the way the world's going, but the world's doing what it's supposed to do. What's meat do when it's left alone? It rots. What's the world do when it's left alone? It's going to rot. We should never be surprised when sinners sin. It's their job description. Uh, they're, they're doing exactly what they were made to do and left it so if the world's, world's going to degrade. The question we ought to be asking is where's the salt? Where are the disciples of Jesus? Where are the Jesus people living amongst the world that are influencing the world for good and being a benefit to it, that are adding the flavor of his wisdom and his goodness to the society and the culture around us? Where are the Jesus people that are loving their neighbors as themselves and caring well for those around them? One guy, John Stott said this, he says, no one blames unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is, where's the salt? So Christians, stay salty. Stay salty. Embrace your saltiness. Another guy said it this way. To look at some Christians. One would think that their ambition is to be the honeypot of the world. They sweeten and sugar the bitterness of life with an all too easy conception of a loving God. But Jesus, of course, did not say you're the honey of the world. He said, you're the salt of the earth. Salt bites in the unadulterated message of judgment and grace. And the grace of God has always has been a biting thing. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we don't, we're not distinctive. We don't have influence in the world. Not because we're just jerks, but sometimes it's because we've tried to soften things so much that we want to sweeten the message. And so when we lose the sense of the holiness of God, when we lose the sense of Jesus saying, if you don't live like me, you're going to be, you might as well be thrown out in the street and trampled upon because you're of no value. When we lose the sense of God's flavor and Christ's flavor in our life, remember what they did to Jesus? It's that at first there, there was a sense in which they have like a love-hate relationship with him. It's like they wanted to sit down and listen to him, but then they also pushed back because it convicted them. And so there's this relationship with Jesus. And he says, you're going to be persecuted if you are associated with me. But then he says, now go be light to the world. And so there's this combination thing that happens and it's not going to make us more appealing to the world to actually undercut the message of Jesus. We still have to be salt. We still have to be distinctive. We have to look different. And the distinctiveness though is not in our arrogance or our caustic nature or our prideful self-condemnation and self-righteousness. Jesus is gonna deal with that later in the Sermon on the Mount where he's gonna say, unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees, you have no part of me. He's gonna push on us there and say, don't be a self-righteous jerk. But there is supposed to be this distinctiveness of, Jesus, of, of Christ-likeness about our lives. And that really comes out of the Beatitudes. He's saying if you learn to live in the ways in which I'm teaching you to live, your life is going to have a flavor about it that looks, that's going to give people a sense of who I am. So we're supposed to have a positive effect in the world. Can I just give you an illustration of that? When, whenever the church has experienced or the world's experienced revival, um, it's been interesting to watch. Anytime you see a revival that happens in the springing up through the church, Several things happen, but one of the offshoots of that is the entire kind of water, uh, watermark of the, whole, of the whole civilization rises. Everything seems to get better. When that happens, and it's not because the Christians start ranting and railing against all the bad out there. What happens is Christians who have been asleep wake up. And new people who who are out in the world, get saved. People who are lost and didn't know Jesus see Christians that are alive and have a sense of Christ in them. And they go, well, I want to know something about that. And they start to come into the church. So you have people that were lost that begin to get found. And because of that, there's, there's this kind of a pinball effect of, goodness that's happening in the life of Christ that's bouncing off of the people of the society and their presence in the world and their presence in their neighborhoods and their presence in their businesses and their presence in their schools and on their teams and in their playgrounds begins to just raise the bar everywhere in the society because of the goodness that happens there and that's the kind of thing that salt that that um, has a sense of Christ has that kind of effect in a place That's obviously what we desire. Let's look at the next uh, image there in verse 14. He says, then, uh, not only are you the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. Now, the first thing uh, that we need to think through about about this imagery of light is that it's a common thread throughout scripture. And then we're gonna come back around and look at uh, if there's a presence of light that's important, there's also another thing we need to talk about, which is, means there's a presence of darkness uh, that's, that's present as well. So uh, two sources of light that Jesus mentioned. He says, first, there's a city set on a hill. And then he talks about a light that's a lamp set on a lampstand. And in the Bible, this imagery of light shows up from Old Testament all the way through to the end. And so it's a very common theme. Oftentimes, light means the, the truth of, uh, of God and what God is all about, but the righteousness and the, uh, the, the character of God as well. In fact, you see this in Isaiah 46. And really Isaiah, there's a, a lot of the book of Isaiah is, shows up in the book of Matthew and Jesus refers back to that a ton. So if you really wanna understand what Jesus is saying here, even going back and reading what Isaiah says, it sheds a lot of light onto this. Sorry, that was, that was not intentional or planned, but there you go. Uh, Isaiah 42.6 says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you as my people. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And do you see what what the Lord is saying to the Old Testament people? He's saying, look, you're my covenant people. I will keep you and I will call you out. And then I will put you out. I will shine you out as a light for the nations. And so even in the Old Testament, it was not meant to be this holy huddle thing that was just for us. He says, I will gather you and I will call you to myself. And then I will, as a people, you will shine a light for the nations, for the good of others. And light symbolized, he goes on in that same Isaiah 42. And he says, I want you to see the new thing that I am doing. And the new thing that he was doing was he was sending Jesus into the world to display light for us and be the light. Jesus will later say, I'm the light. And so Christ is coming to the world. And because of that, you have a new covenant and a new people and all peoples are gathered in. And the, the reason why he gathers all these peoples that in this thing called the church is that we're to be a light for the nations. And so that's really what this is all pointing towards. Now, there's an unstated assumption here that if light's so important, there's also darkness that we need to talk about. And have you ever been camping out in the middle of nowhere? Like really in the middle of nowhere? I remember one time going uh, up in the mountains in Wyoming and hiking back into a valley and we're down kind of between two mountains and we're deep in the valley and you're, you're in a place so dark that you really can't see your hand in front of your face. And as you look out, uh, you can see not just, not just a couple stars, but you see galaxies and you see satellites floating across the sky and you see the, you see the effect of a tiny light in the midst of that kind of darkness and it stands out. Have you ever seen a city off in the distance when you're in a totally dark place like that? You just see the light shining on the horizon? Like you can't hide a city on a hill. Uh, And in this world, you gotta think back to uh, back to Jesus' day, there wasn't electricity. There weren't electric lights. And so when they talk about a city on a hill, what they're talking about is if you're on a journey and you're walking from a long ways away and you're walking through uh, the countryside and you're going towards a city and you see a city on the hill, everyone at nighttime has lit their lamps and they've got uh, their candles lit and there's, everything's burning. And so the, the lampstands typically were uh, a little bowl of oil that would have a wick that was in it, and so they would burn, and in that, um, throughout all the city, you'd see the lights flickering from a long ways away, and there's no light pollution, and they had no phones, and you know, you, you don't notice the light if you're, if you're on your phone all the time, but if you don't have phones, you have no electricity, and you're out in the middle of nowhere, and you're on a donkey, and you're walking down a road, you see a hill, a city way off in the distance, it's going to stand out. In fact, Jesus says it can't be hidden. Here's the thing, Jesus is implying here that our world's a dark place, the root of every problem in our world, if you trace it back, goes to the, goes to the place of sin. And ultimately, it's a, it's a problem of our hearts. John 3.19 says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people have loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Isn't that interesting? This is why do people choose wrong? He says, because they love the darkness. They actually, they actually are seeking out here. This is kind of a fascinating thing. Think about that verse. Where is that verse in the Bible? John 3.19. Well, it's three verses after one of the most famous verses of the Bible, John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that he might save you. So this idea of Jesus coming into the world, being light for the world to save the world, he said Jesus didn't come, in fact, 3, 3.17 says, Jesus didn't come into the world in order to, to condemn the world, but to save the world, right? So this idea of Jesus coming as an act of love from the heavenly father in order to save us and rescue us, not just to condemn us, is is connected here in verse 319 to this problem that we're all in darkness. The reason we needed God to love us and send his son to save us and uh, and rather than condemn us is because we were in darkness. And not just where we were in darkness as a cultural thing, but we were actually desiring the darkness in our hearts. And he says that's the reason uh, this, this hard statement of judgment has to come is the only way that we'll ever get better is if we recognize that we need the light and we need something new. And so he makes this very straightforward statement that the world loved, uh, that the world, uh, people of the world loved the darkness rather than the light because they desired it. It's interesting that in our society, we can, we're so smart, we can invent all kinds of things, but we can't fix the human heart. We haven't figured out how to make bad people good yet. We can, we can connect people through technology so that I can connect with someone on the other side of the world and have a conversation in an instant, but we can't figure out how to make each other better people. Um, there's, there's nothing wrong with technology and screens, but the tragedy is that we have the brilliance to invent these things. We don't have the brilliance to fix the brokenness in our own lives. And our modern world, has more marriage stuff, more advice, more television shows, and podcasts, and books, and uh, lessons, and all kinds of stuff you can do, telling you how to fix your marriage Uh, But then you still put two broken people together and it's amazing. They find a way to conflict. And the thing is, you can't, uh, the the problem's not information. The problem is you've got two people with hearts that are broken. And so they're gonna find their way to fighting even with the best information. We can create the United Nations and all kinds of social things in the world, but we can't stop nations from going to war because we haven't figured out how to make people better yet. There's a lot of smart people in the world living miserable lives, right? Right? The thing about darkness is when you're in the darkness, people stumble unable to find their way. But when you're in the light, people can find their way and everything is clear. Friends, the the world needs light. The dark world needs light to break in and to shine brightly. And it's followers of Jesus, he says, that make the light visible to the world. Scripture tells us that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. It's fascinating, Jesus comes on the scene and earlier he says, I am the light of the world. Then isn't it fascinating that he then turns around and says, you are the light of the world. Is that because we're so good and we got it all together? No, he says, because if, if, uh, if I am the light of the world and I'm in you, then you are the light of the world. That's what Jesus wants us to understand. And you're light because I'm in you. And in the mystical union of faith, that God the Father is part in us. He says, I am in him and he's in me. And you're in me. And you look at John 17 and some of the prayers of Jesus, it sounds like this crazy thing. It's like, God's in you and I'm in, yeah, I'm in the Father and the Father's in you and you're in me and we're all together. And there's this mystical union that ha- takes place because he births something new in us. And so because the light of the Father of lights is in us and because Jesus, the light of the world's in us and because he sends a spirit to live in us, we can shine to the world as lights that are positive influence in the world. So friends, let me ask you this. Are you sure that the light of Christ is in you? So you may be here today and you may not really be a believer in Jesus. You may have been around Christianity. You may have been around the church. You may have heard the words. You may have sat through sermons or slept through sermons. But do you know Christ? Has he birthed new life in you? Has has the light of him broken into the darkness in your life and done something different there? Have you surrendered your life to him? See, there's a God in heaven who will be like a good and loving father to you if you will to trust your life to him. And he will care for you and he will show you the way of goodness and the way to flourish in the world and he'll help shape your life. James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights. See, the only real path to human flourishing and goodness in the universe is from the light that God brings and God gives to us. Now, for those of you that have trusted Christ, and you may feel like a very ordinary Christian person, and every day, guy or gal, going, nah, "I don't know that I can shine that brightly. I don't know that I've got that much to offer." But you need to hear Jesus saying, "You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are the one that I've sent. You and you only are the way that people are going to see the light of Christ." Philippians two fifteen says, children of God without blemish, says that this is the church, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, if you've got Jesus in you, you're going to shine in the world. You're gonna look different. You're gonna stand out. And it's a biblical symbol that, is meant, that we're meant to understand. It's both declaring the goodness of the gospel, but demonstrating the goodness of the gospel in the way we live. In the second half of verse 14, we're going to have this transition. He's going to push, it says this, gives us this specific example of a city set on a hill. And he says that a city set on a hill can't be hidden. Like if you've been in a place like that, uh, you ever ever been camping and there's just like light pollution from a city coming out and you're like, I wish I could just block that out um, because I wish I could really get in total darkness here and really enjoy the stars and everything else. And you can't do it because he says a city set on a hill can't be hidden, meaning true Christians can't be hidden. Their light is going to shine in the same way. Then he goes on in verse 15, he gives us a second example of light. And this is a domestic lamp that was meant, uh, it would take place in a shallow bowl of oil and there'd be a wick that would be there and they'd trim the wick and they'd light the lamp. And he brings up this kind of silly, absurd, ludicrous example that's similar to the salt that's unsalty. He says, what if light that's unlighty? Um, it, that's not really a real word, but what he says is, why would you, why would you go to all the effort of getting the light, getting, a, getting a, a match or whatever it is, and lighting the light, getting this fire started, and then go stick it underneath your bed? Like, that doesn't make any sense. That's just, that would be a really dumb thing to do. And if your kid did it, you'd be like, hey, idiot, what are you doing? Put the lamp back up. Like, we can't see. The lamp's supposed to go up high, so it lights the whole room. And if you put it under the bed, we can't see. That's just a dumb thing to do. Why would you do that? And Jesus is kind of making this, Tongue-in-cheek sort of thing, like, "Hey, if I gave you the light of the world and you went and just hit it, you're just about that stupid. Like you're about that worthless. Like you're not doing what you're supposed to do. You were made to shine light to the world, and you're doing nothing. You were intended to do. And Jesus is, and yeah, it's 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 a little bit pushing on us, isn't it? But that's the image that Jesus is wanting us to do. And I think they probably laughed at the image when you said that, like." When Jesus told this example, I think they probably all snickered like, yeah, that'd be really stupid. Who would do that? And Jesus was like, that's what we're talking about. Like, why do we do that? It doesn't make any sense. Now, he's not talking about showing off. He's gonna deal just a little bit later with religious people that are doing everything for show, that are praying on the corners, that are giving money in order to be seen. And he's not talking about showing off. He's talking about showing out. He's saying, you show out who I, what I've done in you. you. You take the thing that I put in you and you just let it show out. And so you're actually revealing what I'm doing in, in, the, in, in your life to others. And so it goes back to the Beatitudes. You're never gonna show off if you're, if you're poor in spirit, if you're one who mourns over your sin, if you're one who's meek, if you're one who's hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And so these things flow out of the Beatitudes. And so if you start there with the Beatitudes and then you move to good works. So if you start with who does God want me to be and what is he doing in the brokenness of my life? And then you move to doing the good deeds that others can see. It's never gonna be a prideful thing or a showing off thing. It's always gonna be a humble thing something that's coming out of uh, more of a Christ-likeness in the character that he is building in us through the Beatitudes. So it always has the flavor of humility. Friends, we're never meant to hide the truth or hide the good works that we're called to do. In fact, we're supposed to live in such a way it's undeniable. You notice he says, live in such a way so that your good deed, the good deeds that they see will cause them to see them and they'll glorify your Father in heaven. It means it needs to be visible. It needs to be recognizable. It needs to be distinct enough that they look and go, huh, what's going on over there? Like, we ought to be a problem to the people around us where they're scratching their head going, man, that guy responded to that situation really differently. Man, those people just have this, like a life to them, even in the midst of trials and hardship that, that, that they're flourishing and they're thriving. And even in the midst of that, they, these are people that seem to be going through difficult times where everyone's not agreeing with them. And yet they've got this joy uh, that's, that's bubbling out of them. It's like when Paul was in prison and uh, there he's in prison for his faith and you think like he could get all mopey in the corner and soak, but instead he's like, he's singing songs and worshiping and there's this joy. And finally this guard's like, hey, tell me something about that. And that's the way we ought to live. That, that our good works and our presence around the people of our city ought to make them go, I'm not sure I understand that. I'm not sure I agree with that, but could you tell me more about what's going on in there? Because I don't really understand it but at some point they're they're attracted to it and they may be also repelled by it in some sense, but it ought to make them puzzled. It ought to make them ask questions. And at some point it says, some of them will glorify our father in heaven because of what they see. Meaning that they're gonna look at the lives and the distinctiveness of Christians and the goodness of what they bring into the world and they're gonna go, well, that must've come out of this, from someplace outside this world because that couldn't have come from just an everyday guy. And that's where we can point them to Jesus and say, you're right, that didn't come from me, that came from Christ in me. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about his grace. Let me tell you about the, the way of his kingdom. Let me tell you about his flourishing. Let me tell you what he calls us to do and how goodness lurks and how the world works. And let me tell you about what he's coming back to do. And let me tell you how you can be a part of that too. It allows us to make a difference in the world. Friends, that, that's your job description, Your job description is not to go just have quiet times by yourself and practice personal holiness in in the closet of your house. You need to do that. But you're also meant to have a public witness and presence in the city and in the world where others get to see and where we're out serving those. That means that you're supposed to shine as lights wherever you go. That means your job is part of the mission of God. It means when you go to school, you're on mission for the Lord. It means when you go to the grocery store, you're on mission for the Lord. It means when you're investing in the community and have neighborhood relationships and friendships, and you're participating in just the fabric of the city, that you're on mission, shining as a light for Jesus. In those places, every step of every day, wherever it is that you go. That's why in verse uh, And so everything we do is missional. In verse 16, he says, "'Let your, your light shine before others "'so that they may see your good works "'and give glory to your Father who is in heaven.'" I think it's more specific. He's saying it's not just shining like light, but the specific way in which we shine the light of Christ is through the good deeds that we do. Through the way in which we live, the things that we do in the world. Good deeds are those that honor God. Bad deeds are those that dishonor God. So go do stuff that honors God and honors the way he's taught us to live. And that, he says, makes us shine in the world. You know it's fascinating me? It says, so that, and so when you, when you look at that verse, It's uh, let your light so shine in the world or, or shine before others so that they may see your good works. So that means for the purpose that. So let your light shine so that everyone can see the good that God's doing in you and eventually give honor and glory to him. That's the call and that's what we're to be about. Friends, as we think about this, I think, the problem is when we have the message of Christ without the manner of Christ, then the world looks at us and experiences two things. They go, well, it must not work. Like the, the way of Jesus must not work because those people don't look anything like him. Or they go, well, or they're just a hypocrite who's saying something they don't really believe. And what Jesus is saying is, if we're gonna be salt in the world, we need to be salty. If we're gonna be the light of the world, we have to shine brightly. And so he's calling us into that. And the way we do that is to walk with him and really through his strength, not for ours. Uh, The beauty of the gospel is when the church looks different from the world, but they're attracted to the gospel message because of the presence of gospel people in the world, Jesus people. And to do that, it means we've got to learn to walk with him. So let me ask you this, how do we apply this message to our lives? What do do we do with uh, with this message of Jesus and what he's calling us to do? Um, Well, first, you need the light in you. So, ha, Have you put your faith in Christ so that his light's broken into your heart and, and revealed something new there so that you have the life of Christ in you? Have you surrendered your life to him and said, my way leads to darkness. I need light to break in to my life and then to trust him. That, that's the first thing you need to do. We'd love to tell you more about what it looks like to trust Jesus, to walk with him after the service. Come find us. And we would love nothing more than sit down and just say, let me tell you about Jesus and all he's done for you and the grace and the love that he has for you and the way in which he wants to take your brokenness and bring beauty out of it um, for, the good of, for the good of the world. For those of us who do know Jesus, it seems that we have to choose between two ways of life. Are we gonna hide the light or are we gonna shine the light? It's pretty simple, isn't it? Um, at least understand. Not necessarily to live. Um, how do we hide the light? Uh, one guy said, he said, It seems like lately the church has done her best to make herself and the God whom um, her existence bears witness to as unattractive as possible. Friends, when we don't live like Christ, we're, we're hiding the light of his goodness and we're bringing in darkness in the world instead of goodness. When we, when we look just like the world, when we fight like the world, when we fear the world so we're not present with people, when we hate the world and live in judgment of others, when we seek power and position in the world, when we neglect to serve the practical needs of the world, uh, when we fail to be real friends to real people in our world, when we ignore the honest concerns and questions of our world, these are ways I think we hide the light. And we need to set aside anything that would distract people from the, uh, from the light of Christ in order to, to let him shine. And so we need to move towards him. Here's, I think, the, the, the exciting thing and the scary thing about what Jesus says is that our world will never have any light anywhere except you and me. Let that sink in. Christ says, you are the light of the world. So I'm the light of the world and I'm sending you. You are the light of the world. Our world will never have any light except for you and me and other Christians. That is the light that um, that God has sent. And we shine light by being different from the world, but also by making a difference in the world. We're called to be reflectors of Christ, that when they look at us, it shines the light that he has brought into our lives to them. And uh, really, it's kind of the key principle of all discipleship. Like if there was a uh, Mr. Miyagi saying in the church, uh, that like just ought to be pounded in our heads. Jesus said to his disciples over and over, he just said, follow me, follow me, follow me, look like me, do as I do, live as I live, speak as I speak, love as I love. One place Jesus says, as the father sent me, I'm sending you. Where is he sending us? He's sending us to the world. That means that we're supposed to have this external focus that we're called to shine, shine uh, as light in the world. And so friends, what we're, what our lives are meant to be about is we're dropping breadcrumbs of goodness all the way through life, trying to lead people into the kingdom of God. And so as you wake up every day, you're like, let me just drop a little goodness in the world. Let me drop a little more. Let me drop a little more. And you're hoping that people are going to pick those crumbs up and they're going to walk all the way in to say, I want to know about this kingdom that's making you do all these things. And I want to know about the king. So here's, here's what I want us to take away today. And we're called ambassadors of Christ elsewhere in the scriptures. That means that we're to be agents of Jesus in the world with this outward focus shining outwardly to others. And that, in that, uh, we're, we're inviting people to honor, to, to, to trust in his grace, to honor the Lord and to learn from him how to flourish in his kingdom. But Jesus always insists that our posture has to be openness to those outside of his circle of disciples, And so Jesus talking to his followers and his disciples says, you guys, you gals are the ones that shine to those outside of this circle. And so we're to have this outward orientation so that we fulfill the purpose that they may see the beauty that God's doing in and through our lives. So anything that hides the goodness of God, man, we want to set that aside. Anything that distracts people from the goodness of God, we want to set that aside. We don't ever want to put a dimmer switch on the light of Christ, right? We want to shine brightly. And so anything that dims the look of goodness in the world through us, we want, to, we want to elevate, we want to get rid of that. Let me say this. As a Christ follower, I'm concerned, I'm to be concerned for the souls and well-being of all people is one of the things that means. That means I, I don't just care about my people. See, Jesus' care, people care about all people. They care about the the goodness, Uh, they care about their souls, and they care care about their well-being. And so there's this outward orientation or bent uh, of that. And so that means that, that that includes those who think and look and speak and vote and act differently than my people. I still care about those people because I'm one of Jesus' people. And Jesus came to the world in order to save the world and to preach the message of good news and of his kingdom. It means nothing should deter us from declaring and demonstrating the love of God to the world. It means no ideology, no preference, no personal hang-up. Nothing that, that is in us should keep us from shining the light of Christ to others. It means we set aside and surrender those things for the good of others. You know this last year's just been hard for the church because I think we've we lost sight of this, and so uh, that's why I think this message is so timely for us. That as we look at it, um, friends, can I just tell you, stay salty. And the way you stay salty, stay connected to Jesus. Shine brightly. The way you shine brightly is to let the light of Christ shine in your heart and let that overflow into everything in your life. But just know this, you matter. And God can shine through you no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, that if you'll surrender to him, he will shine in your heart. And he says, follow me and you'll shine brightly in a world. And when we do that, when we're salt and light, there'll be some hard days. There'll be days when people push against us, but we'll also make a difference in a world and be a benefit to the, those around us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the wisdom of Christ's words. Thank you for sending him As a light into the world, Father, would you raise up a people in us who taste like him, who look like him, who shine as brightly as Christ. That people might look and they would see the, the way in which we serve the poor, the way in which we love one another, the way in which we react when challenged, the way in which we build our marriages, the way in which we disciple our children, the way in which we serve our employer, the way in which we care for our neighbors, for those who are hurting in our world. Father, all those things, that we'd live in such a way that would honor you and cause people to ask questions about who you are and what you're doing in this remarkable thing called the church. Father, we pray it in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for this redemption sermon resources and information about Redemption Church, visit redemptionokc.com and follow us on social media.